the resurrection, we really see it in the, in the Bible. We see that it was the rallying cry, the battle cry of the early evangelists, the early church. And in the same way, we should also utilize or find that the resurrection, the empty tomb, is also our rallying cry to live our lives and fulfill that which God has put on our hearts, that which God has called us to do. And so, let's start out uh, by reading in John chapter 20 the account of that Easter morning. In starting in verse 1, it says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. And so we can see in this story, the Easter morning was not a morning of hope. It was not a morning of purpose. It was not a morning of excitement. But for the disciples, the followers of Jesus, everything that they had hoped for seemed to have come to a crushing and intense end there on the cross. And so their purpose had been deflated. And I believe that we all need purpose in our lives, right? We all need something that we're living for. We all need something that we are pursuing and running after. And I fear, and I think that we should all fear, getting to the ends of our life, sitting there, you know, when we're super old or whatever, about to die, that we haven't actually lived. Oh, man, I've lived all these years and I haven't actually done anything of significance. We all need a purpose and we all have a part to play. And um, possibly my favorite movie of all time. And this, this, the, I'm gonna, this is gonna be a little bit shocking. So it is not Star Wars. I know, I know, I know. First, first service, they never recovered from this point. So if you guys could just stay with me, that would be great. So just, it's okay. I, I could, I could actually use an illustration from Star Wars, but I have not. I'm breaking the mold today. Um, my, probably my favorite movie of all time is Stranger Than Fiction. Has anybody seen Stranger Than Fiction? Will Ferrell. That's it, yeah. So, <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. Um, and so, Stranger Than Fiction, it is this amazing movie about a man coming to life. All right, Will Ferrell plays um, IRS auditor Harold Crick. All right? And Harold Crick lives a very routine life and he gets up at the same time every day and he brushes his teeth the same number of strokes every day and he walks to the bus the same number of steps at the same time every day and he audits the same number of cases every day. I'm not sure what an IRS guy does. Anyway, he's something with folders. And so he does all, everything is routine in his life. And then through circumstances in the movie that I can't get into, he finds out that his death is imminent. 
And his imminent death looming over him causes him to begin to embrace life. And we're going to show a clip of what I think is kind of the crux of him becoming alive. And I'm just going to talk for a minute until the, the video is ready. Are we ready? Are we ready? This is powerful. It's ish. It's powerful. That's the beginning of the movie. We don't have time to watch the whole movie. No, no, it, it is significant. Well, if it doesn't work. There it is. 122 guitars. 732 strings. 257 pickups, 189 volume knobs. Here Harold stood, face to face with his oldest desire. And stand is almost all Harold did. It wasn't just about finding a guitar. It was about finding a guitar that said something about Harold. Unfortunately, this guitar said, when I get back to Georgia, that woman gonna feel my pain. This one said something along the lines of, why yes, these pants are like that. These said, I'm very sensitive, very caring, and I have absolutely no idea how to play the guitar. I'm compensating for something, guess what? And then Harold saw it. A damaged and terribly mistreated seafoam green fender staring back at him. Despite its obvious malady, the guitar spoke with conviction and swagger. In fact, it looked Harold directly in the eye and very plainly stated, I rock. Awesome. And so certainly you're like, Mark, we get it. That's such a brilliant Easter clip. That, it makes so much sense. But I think that if you just stick with me for a little bit, we're going to, to get to this. Because we see that Harold Crick, right, he, as, as we learn about him in, in the movie, he doesn't have any hopes, he doesn't have any dreams, he's just getting through life, not really living. And somebody says, you know, don't, there must be something, there must be something that you were passionate about. And he, he says, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted my life to be more musical. He says, you know, and so I, I wanted to learn to play the guitar. And that was really all he had. And so in this part of the movie, he, he goes and he embraces that little thing, that little passion that is inside of him. And as he takes that step, the rest of the movie, he just becomes more and more alive. And I, I just love the story because it speaks to the heart that burns inside of me to do something significant, to really achieve something, to actually live my life. And there's, and I also wanted to, somebody else that's really has inspired me, and I don't, I think he's not here. Yes, Dan's not here. So Dan Jeffries is an entrepreneur, right? He's an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. If, if you've ever talked to him, you know, he just, if there's just something inside of him that longs to, to fulfill this idea of starting a business and, and doing this thing, right? And he, so he takes risks and he, he lives life. He embraces the cost that it takes to fulfill this call on his life. And I think he's not just going through the motions because it's fun, but I think that God has put something inside of him, right? God has put a call on his life 
to be significant and to have his purpose fulfilled as an entrepreneur. And he's been given a, an opportunity to speak into the lives of the business community in Kalamazoo. And he, as he's pursued it, you know, it's been really impressive how he started this little business with just him. And now he's got, I don't know, bunches of employees and he's handed off the running of it to somebody else and he's off doing his own thing now. And, and he's, as he pursues his passion, he is able to step into the fullness of life that God has for him. And, and I've talked to Dan, you know, I know that there's been times where he's had to, you know, work all day late into the night. And I remember one Sunday right over here talking to him, this was years ago, that some server or something crashed in Texas and it was a big deal and he had to, to fix it or something. I don't know what. I've, I have asked Dan like seven million times what he does. I still have no idea. Something about computers, though. And so he was dealing with that, but you see, this. There's setbacks and there's difficulties as he pursues this call and this passion in his life. And yet he is willing to pursue and push past those things because he knows that he's been called to do it. And he knows that he has a a purpose from, from God just to be able to speak to people that you and I will never be able to speak to. Right? And it's not that he's out there, you know, at work, standing on a, a milk crate, preaching the gospel, right? But he's living the gospel. He's telling, you know, he's being light and salt in the earth. All right? And so this idea, where are you going, Mark? Why are you talking about Dan so much? Do you have a crush on him? Maybe. I don't know. And, and so... And so he is able to pursue and he is willing to count the cost to pursue what God has spoken into his life. And as he he has done that, he's actually helped me a lot to be able to kind of embrace what God has called me to do. And me and Dan's callings are super different. I don't know, it's very different, right? He's kind of businessy and I'm going to school to, to be a pastor. But it's that same call of God inside of us that each one of us has. God has placed something inside of us that we need to pursue, that we need to press after. And I think that if we are pressing after what God has called us to do, it's something beyond what we can do on our own strength. It's something bigger than we can just handle by ourselves. And so when difficulties come, because they will, all right, and when things get hard and you have to spend, like me yesterday, I spent the entire Saturday writing and reading while other people frolicked in the beautiful spring air. And I just looked out my window and looking at other people frolicking. And so, and it's like, sometimes it might go, Mark, why are you, why are you doing this? You're, you don't get to spend time with your family or you're giving this up. You're giving up the beautiful spring day. What's, is it worth it? But we have to remember that God has put a call in our hearts. God has put something inside of us. And for me, that's going to school because I want to be a great pastor and I just am passionate about that. And so I'm willing to count the cost that it takes. And for Dan, it, he's willing to count the cost of time and energy and the things that it takes to accomplish his goal. And for each one of us, whether we're a stay-at-home mom or a landscaper or a whatever Dan Jeffries does, you know, whatever it is that we're called to do, we can, we can do it. And I believe that that calling is significant and Jesus has put us there on purpose. And so the, the question can come up when things get difficult, is why are we doing it? And Harold Crick, our friend Harold Crick, was pursuing life because he thought that he was going to die, right? In, 
And Dan could have got discouraged on the days that he worked all day and had to juggle life, but he knew why he was doing it. And the same thing for me. I know why I'm doing it. And we need to understand what our goal is, what our purpose is, okay? And trust me, I'm getting back. I'm getting back to Easter. So, and so today, we want to look at the story of the resurrection. And we want to look at how the first century believers were given a call, that they were given a purpose. And this purpose, right, it was way too big for them. Preach the gospel to all the world? Okay, that sounds difficult. You know, but it, and it was a purpose that included work, and it included difficulty, and it included you know, uh, persecution. It even included martyrdom. But it was a purpose and a calling that they could not deny. And it was a purpose that brought them, even through the difficulty, it brought them into the fullness of life. And a purpose that, that was difficult, but it was really their only way. You know, they could have easily, in a sense, turned their back on Jesus, you know, after the crucifixion, and just kind of bought a house with a nice picket fence and mowed their lawns on Saturdays and, you know, played Halo or whatever they wanted to do. You know, that, they could have done that and that would have been easier than the purpose that they had been called to. And yet they knew that if they just kind of turned their back on Jesus and just accepted mowing the lawn, that they would not fulfill the glory and the amazing abundance of life that Jesus had called them to, even in the midst of the difficulty. And what kept them going, I believe, that even while they were being persecuted and almost all of the, the disciples and many of the other followers of Jesus were, were martyred, and what kept them going was that they remembered that there was an empty tomb. They remembered that they served a risen Jesus. And that motivated them and that rallied them to pursue that which God had called them to do. And like I said, the, the, for the early church, the resurrection was really their rallying cry to pursue what God had given them. And they were willing to face persecution in the midst of it. And so we're going to just transition here. That was my intro. That was too long. That was as long. Um, so we're going to go quickly. No worries. It's fine. We'll get, we'll get to your hams. <laughs> Unless you're like me, I think I'm having beans. Vegan. Yay. Um, so the, the morning... Uh, the, so the morning we find here in John 20 was a morning of disappointment. Right? It was a morning of hopelessness and despair. All that the, the followers of Jesus had thought and hoped for, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the one who was going to make everything right again, this excitement about the, the coming kingdom of God is finally here, had all kind of been crushed. As Jesus, they found out, was a great teacher. He was a great man. They really enjoyed hanging out with him, but apparently... That's all that he was. Because now, he was dead. And even though Jesus had warned them at least three times in the Gospel accounts that he was going to die and he was going to raise, rise again, they didn't understand. You know, it didn't make sense to them. And now, in the aftermath of, of that horrible crucifixion, they just probably didn't know what to do. And so Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. You know, and why did she go... The, the book of John, the Gospel of John, doesn't really spell it out 
clearly she's just going to the tomb. And some of the other Gospels say that her and a group of women were going to finish the, the burial process. And, you know, and really, what else is Mary going to do? You know, she had been following Jesus for, for a number of years since he cast these demons out of her, and she had been a devoted follower, and she had helped meet his physical needs and, you know, been there to support him and the disciples as they ministered through the area. And, and all of her hope and all of her expectation, all of her purpose was wrapped up in this guy who is now dead. And so maybe she went to the tomb just because she needed something to do. You know, she needed to be close to him, to remember, you know, him and kind of think about what could have been. But what we do know is that she did not go to the tomb expecting a resurrection. Nobody expected it. The disciples were hiding, fearing that they could be next on the chopping block, wondering what they're supposed to do now. And so Mary, in her grief, she goes to the tomb. And according to the other gospel accounts, she, you know, the, the other women are there, but John just focuses on her. And she goes to the tomb, and she finds the, the tomb is empty. And so she doesn't know what to do with that, so she runs back to the disciples, and John and Peter run back to the tomb, and they are kind of... Few, it says, Gospel of John says that John believed and Peter's still kind of like what's going on here and so and then they, they they leave right and so Mary comes back and she's standing and weeping at the at the entrance to the tomb she's weeping her, her heart is broken and so she looks in again she peers into the tomb again and there are two angels the gospel says there's two angels sitting there and they ask her what are you looking for and she doesn't you know, she doesn't really respond very well, it seems, because she kind of turns around and she runs into Jesus, but she doesn't recognize Jesus, and, and she mistakes him for the garden. And, and, um, and he asks her, he says to her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you were looking for? And Mary is apparently not really paying attention to what the gardener is saying, and so she says, Sir, if you've taken him, tell me where you've put him. And then he reveals himself to her by saying, Mary. And she's so excited. Oh, it's Jesus. And she clings to him. And he says, don't, don't cling to me. Go and tell the disciples that I am ascending to my Father. And this is amazing. Alright, this is amazing. You know, why didn't the angels show up to the disciples? They were literally just there. Or why didn't Jesus reveal himself to the, uh, the di- disciples? They probably just walked down the same path he approached the, the tomb on. And yet Jesus chooses to reveal himself to Mary. And that is, is significant because, you know, God, don't take this the wrong way, God has a tendency to use the weak and the foolish and the unexpected to do his work. Now, I'm not saying that Mary was weak or foolish, or all women are weak or foolish. That's not true. That's not what I'm saying. So, you know, it's because God uses the, the, the things that the world looks at as, as not really having it all together to do his work. You know, we see it in Moses. We see it in Gideon. We see it in David. We see it, you know, all throughout the Bible that God chooses the, the weak and the foolish, right, to, to do, to carry out his purposes. And... Um, in those days, 
women weren't even allowed to testify in court. Women were just kind of like property or they were just kind of like second-class citizens, right? And so the idea that if the disciples were making up this story about the risen Jesus, there's no way they would use the women as, as the first eyewitnesses of this resurrection. And so, just as an aside, that's kind of a proof that the Bible is true. Hmm, that's it. Oh, thanks, Mark. That's helpful. Um, <laughs> so, all right, Mark, so what's your point? What does this have to do with you and me? And I think that what it means is that Jesus isn't always looking for the best and the brightest. He's not always looking for the people with the, the most worldly authority, or he's not looking for the people that have the most credentials or the, the people with all the charisma and all the followers, you know. What Jesus is looking for is those who are faithful, Jesus is looking for those who will take him at his word and that will run towards him. And Mary was set free by Jesus and became a devoted follower. And I believe that it wasn't her inherent skills of cooking and taking care of people that gave her a place, but it was because she was faithful and devoted to Jesus and was willing to follow her, that Jesus honors her by making her the first apostle, the first sent one that will reveal the risen Christ to the world. That is awesome. And, you know, we can feel like that a lot. You know, we can feel like we don't measure up. But I believe that Jesus has called you to a specific purpose and he has called me to a purpose. And if he has put us here, if he has called us to this place, then he is going to empower us and help us to fulfill what he has called us to do. You know, the Bible says that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead indwells each one of us as believers. And so that power in being faithful and following Jesus to do what he has called us to do, will, we will be empowered to get it done. Even if there are people that might do it better. God has chosen you at this point to do what he has called you to do. And we're just going to quickly, quickly wrap up and talk about the disciples. In John 20, 19, it says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. You know, and so it's Sunday night. They have the doors locked. The text says they are scared. They don't understand. John and Peter have come back from the tomb. The tomb's empty. They don't really understand what's going on. Mary came back like, Hey, guys, I saw the risen Lord. And they're just like, What is going on? We were just there. We didn't see any risen Lord. Right? And so they're fearful and they're hiding. They think that the... the uh, the Jewish leaders are going to come and crucify them. And so they're trying to figure out, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Maybe we could go back to fishing. That could be fun. We did that before. Or Matthew's probably like, I could, maybe I could go back to tax collecting. And he's like, I don't think they let you go back to that after you quit like that. And even if I could go to that thing, you know, we've just spent the last three or four years following Jesus and seeing people healed and just living life to its fullest. And yeah, you know, there were some, some rough times, but man, it was amazing. And so now to go back fishing, that's ah, going to be kind of boring. It's going to be kind of lame. Ah, we were doing so much. And so they're sitting there helpless and hopeless without purpose in their lives. 
And so they're sitting there, picking at their food, you know, kind of trying to decide, you know, what are we going to do now? I hope nobody crucifies us. That would be horrible. And maybe we should go back here. Maybe we should do that. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears. And you can imagine that they're like, what's going on? Who is this guy? Oh, it's Jesus. And Jesus comes in and he says, peace be with you. And peace be with you was a, was a very common Hebrew greeting at that time. But Jesus is using it here in a really significant way, with a deeper meaning than just a casual greeting. You know, he's saying that this peace that he promised, um, just a few chapters before this in John fourteen twenty seven, Jesus said to his followers, he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. And according to my NIV study Bible notes regarding this passage, it says the term here, peace or shalom, in effect, of it, it speaks of the salvation that Christ's redemptive work will achieve for, for his disciples. Total well-being and inner rest of spirit in fellowship with God. And so Jesus isn't showing up and just saying, hey, things are fine, you know, hey, have a nice day, you know, or just some casual like, hey guys, what's going on? Hey, can I have some of that fish or whatever? You know, he's not saying that. He's saying something incredibly significant. He's saying, peace be with you. Total well-being. Inner rest of your spirit because you are once again in fellowship with God. And Paul says it like this in Romans 5.1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we're no longer God's enemies. God has come while we were still his enemies, and through the death and the resurrection of Jesus has brought us perfect peace with God. And another commentary says that nothing in the world can offer such a gift. Jesus' peace not only brings an end to the brokenness caused by sin, but it will be the fruit of the Spirit given when he departs. Jesus has said the the brokenness because of sin is over. It is dead. I am speaking peace to you. Peace with God the Father. Not based on your circumstances, not based on what's happening in your life, but real eternal salvation, restoration of your soul. And so, Jesus' arrival in that locked room brings the fulfillment of what he had promised them. He speaks peace to them, peace found when our sin has been born on the shoulders of Christ. Peace found when we pour out our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus. And again, we don't see a group of disciples that have it all figured out. We're living victoriously in faith, but Jesus doesn't scold them. He doesn't give them a hard time. He just lovingly and affectionately reveals to them the truth that he tried to tell them before, ahead of time. He says, the grave could not hold him, and he is alive. And so you don't have to be purposeless. You don't have to be hopeless. I am alive. And I think that Jesus is saying the same thing to each one of us today when our faith is flagging, when we're having a difficult time fulfilling that which God has called us to do. He comes to you and says, I am alive. And we can use the empty tomb as a rallying cry to pursue what he has called us to do. Because in the, the last, in the, the next verse, in John twenty twenty one says Jesus says again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. You see, Jesus was sent 
to be the, you know, the, the Savior, the Messiah of the world. And he was doing all the ministry, right, as the apostles followed him around. And now Jesus is going back to the Father. And he says, don't worry. Just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And yeah, we're going to give you the Holy Spirit. You're going to have everything you need to do it. But we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We have been given the ministry to be salt and light to the world. And so I think that whatever we have been called to do, whether that's, again, a stay-at-home mom or a, a, a lawyer or a school teacher or a pastor or a computer person, whatever you have been called to do, God has called you to do it. And he has empowered you to do it. And through that significant purpose in your life, you are going to be salt and light to the world. I believe that your life is significant and it is proven on the cross and in the resurrection. And so the resurrection, in closing, is the most important part of our faith. It has to be the bedrock, the foundation of everything we do. Because as Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. But good news, it is true. And we rejoice this morning in the rallying cry to help us to fight the good fight, to fulfill what God has called us to do, that He is risen indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Joel. (laughs) Thank you, Mark.